Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cochileo. And uh, before we get started, I would just like to thank my staff, executive producer, Candice Sanderson, also senior editor, Amanda Steele, and my sound and production engineer, Damien Keller. Thank you guys for all your help. And if anybody else out there is interested in contributing, you can go to my website, Everything Imaginable 2020, and click dot com and click on the contribution page and everything is there and today we have for our guest richard grossinger and he is an author he has written a couple of books um one is called bottoming out the universe and he also has an unpublished book that i was lucky enough to get a uh, top secret copy of and uh and this is going to be a very wild ride. Thanks for coming on, Richard. Yeah, well, thanks for um, pulling me out of the air. And me here. <laughs> That's what I do. So uh, where do you want to start? You want to start on bottoming out the universe? Um, well, I don't know your show, so I, I kind of don't know. I, as you say, everything goes. So I Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. I don't really know my own show either. Yeah. Well, I could I could kind of set up the relationship of what I what I'm doing or what I do. Yeah. Actually, have a pretty long stream of books that I've been working on, going back to the really to the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And I had um, I had four main streams I was doing. One was on healing and alternative medicine and shamanism. And another was on astronomy and cosmology. And the third one was on embryology and biology and how we get bodies. And then the fourth one was about consciousness itself. So it was like a walk through creation. Yeah. Well, that's what it kind of was. I didn't start off with that plan. In fact, um, it was um, back in the late 70s when I stopped teaching college and I was looking for another way to earn a living that I ended up kind of doing a book on hire for Doubleday on the history of alternative medicine, which was called Planet Medicine. Mm-hmm. And then when I finished that, I thought, well, why don't I try astronomy, cosmology, do a book that crosses all the way from... Uh, from UFOs and astrology to actual astrophysics. Okay. And I did that originally for Sierra Club. It was called The Night Sky. And um, and the most recent version of it was subtitled Soul and Cosmos. Mm-hmm. And then I did a couple of embryology books and then moved on to consciousness. So where you come into it, you mentioned the two books. Um, My book, Bottoming Out the Universe, which is the last book I wrote that's available, it has the the subtitle, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. And that's kind of bringing all the themes together in a relatively short, accessible book that 
is fundamentally a discussion of the difference between the two views of the universe, the materialistic view, which is the dominant religion of modernity, that everything has simply come about randomly. Um, the, the universe came out of nowhere or out of the Big Bang, and it's driven essentially by non-conscious forces that became conscious through random evolution. And then there's the opposite belief system or the, the kind of converse belief system that all of this arose as a kind of um, conscious wave that has projected itself out into matter mm -hmm. and has formed uh, has formed the universe as a sort of projection of a of a kind of innate intelligence. And mm -hmm. I wrote that book um, to kind of square the views in my own mind. Right. Um, and to, I mean, I had a prejudice, but I didn't want uh, my my bias lay with a more magical, um, luminous, sacred universe. But I didn't, uh, I don't adopt that viewpoint in a kind of traditional um, psycho-spiritual or religious way. Right. I more feel that this manifestation has to be explained. It's not just an accident. Mm -hmm. And it's not um, from a kind of probably inaccurate Buddhist view, but one that's much practiced. It's not simply to be transcended, to get to enlightenment. Mm -hmm. it's, it's where we are and what we have to deal with. And so that book, Bottoming Out the Universe, goes back and forth between discussions of things like people who have memories of past lives and spirit communications to um, simply scientific views of how matter organizes and how, um, how consciousness evolved from cells. And I just sort of go back and forth and work towards a point where, um, where they sort of um, fuse into a more complex view that's essentially beyond our own um, our own capability of making a model for this, the scientific model of everything is not really a model of everything. It's, it's, it's a model that leaves out consciousness in the center of it. Mm -hmm. So when I, the new book, now the new book found itself back there and I shared it with people online and, and I guess it reached Gary but I started off the new book in a totally different place because I do pop culture. I do a lot of pop culture and kind of nonfiction, nonfiction, memoir, novel type stuff. And I'm kind of semi-retired from doing the career I did of being a publisher and publishing other people's books. Mm -hmm. And in, in this sort of new life, of that, I'm I'm doing an imprint at Inner Traditions Press, an imprint called okay. Sacred Planet, and I've probably brought in about thirty or forty books over just the first year of doing it, and I'm mostly bringing in books around 
topics. The topics that interest me the most at the moment are kind of witchcraft, Wiccan, alchemy, astrology, mm -hmm. um, more occult stuff than the kind of body work, martial arts, alternative medicine I was doing at my own press, uh -huh. North Atlantic Books. And I was asked at one point to work on a book to help them with a book that wasn't under my imprint about chaos magic and Donald Trump. <laughs> called, um, Gotta love the, chaos magic. Yeah, called the, called the King in Orange. Um, it was written <laughs> by um, a Mason um, named John, what's his name? John Michael Greer. And in working <laughs> on the book with him, um, I, I kind of thought, I want to take it in a different direction. I thought that there was a much more, for me, uh, there was a more appealing way to go on Trump and chaos magic. But I let it go and the months passed and I, I put together an anthology for Inner Traditions, a COVID anthology, which came out a couple of months ago called The Corona Transmissions. Mm -hmm. And in that, I did a lot of writing about um, the virus and, and conspiracy theories around the virus and then the, the, the enigmas there. I mean, the virus, aside from the fact that it crisscrosses political and scientific views so that they're almost inseparable now. Um, nobody knows what's up really. And, um, and we could get back to that, but um, actually I grab a copy of this anthology called the Corona Transmissions. And so I had, I had this sort of idea of Trump and chaos magic, which I'll simply um, frame by saying that whether consciously or unconsciously, and I think it was mostly unconsciously, Trump basically enacted a form of chaos magic and absolutely put the electorate under a spell. And, um, and I think it was somewhat conscious in the case of Steve Bannon, who was tied, who himself was directly tied into some chaos magic traditions through um, Julius Evola and um, and Rene Guinan, mm -hmm. um, and and again, I'll just leave that hanging there. Um, but also, in a conscious sense, from his own upbringing under Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking, and the notion of using mind control on people, right, and. Uh, all of this, I don't think that this was like a strategy as much as it was his identity. He, um, he, he didn't really have another identity in a certain sense. He was like, uh, like some sort of, he was practicing magic instead of anything else, only that's not what he called it. Mm -hmm. And then as, the, as QAnon arose, I got particularly curious about it because it was divided into two um, factions, the so-called lunatic faction that believed in wild conspiracy theories, so-called, and then the people who considered them a lunatic faction believing in wild conspiracy theories. I was much more interested in something that was neither, which is what's, what's it sourced in? 
that is true? Well, what's the underlying truth since something is driving it? And it doesn't really matter what its manifestation is. Yeah, from many people's standpoints, it is totally crazy and delusional and propagandistic. And I have friends who say they don't even like using the word. Um, but I, I thought it was interesting. I always liked the letter Q, um, period. I, going back to a book I read when I was in college, um, Robert Graves, The White Goddess, mm. where he talks about the tree alphabet and the particular role of the letter Q, which was uh, essentially in his tree alphabet, which I think was more his own mythology than maybe the true origin of the letter, but it was the apple, which in the, um, the, the Celtic dialect he was dealing with was, was Q-U-E-R-T, quirt. Right. And the apple, um, the Q represented the question of um, the apple on the tree in the Garden of Eden, which uh, um, the tree of knowledge and then that Q works its way through Latin, where all the inter interrogatives, or at least the majority of them, begin with Q, mm -hmm. um, which doesn't make it over into English, where it's more often WH. But um, it does make it over in terms of words like quantum and quasar and quark, which address essential mysteries in the universe. Yes. And that's the far stretch from the conspiracy theory. Yet, um, in my ch I, I basically created a chapter on that in the book. And so I, the original manuscript I wrote opened with a chapter on Trump as chaos magician. And, and but also went through a pretty heavy critique of him. And then QAnon, a history of the letter Q, a history of the of millinery religion, um, like the cargo cult and the ghost dance and other millinery religions. Right. And and then um, and then trying to source QAnon and point out the way in which it was rooted both in the left and right wing. It's mostly rooted in the right wing. Yeah. But it's rooted also in holistic health, shamanism, and in that really significant crossover where the progressive left wing is allied with corporate science. Mm -hmm. and, and it's the um, it's the outliers who and those and who you know have other conspiracy theories who also believe in magic um, right. and believe in in alternative medicine and visions and and religion and that was my third chapter in the book i took it from uh, michael lerner who's a rabbi he wrote a book um, in 2005 called the left hand of god mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that book right um, it's um but he basically it's a political religious book in which he makes the argument that the um that the and this was in 05 that the left was losing the culture war to the right because it was dissing it was dissing not just organized religion but it was dissing um it was dissing spiritual content um 
the base, all the basic ideas uh, that lie behind something like chaos magic. Yeah. And the simple, the opportunity to be rogue in a sense and to, um, to cross, to cross lines, to, to, um, to speak, um, I guess you would, you'd say to speak, these things tend to overlap to speak, uh, to use politically, um, you know, incorrect speech and all these things overlap in a culture that's also associated with a kind of um, a, a, an anti-corporate science spirituality. So I did a, a third chapter on that and then a fourth chapter on, um, on COVID using the piece I wrote for the anthology and rewriting it. And then my fifth chapter was about, um, uh, about chaos. it was a history of magic and how you get from magic to chaos magic, mm-hmm. um, which I'll say something about in a second. But um, what, I, what I did from there was, and, and when I ultimately rewrote the book, I broke it into a whole separate chapter. That is the, um, the, the capital riot. Um, and initially I tried to write about that as an extension of, um, of, the, of the sort of chaos magic that Trump had set in motion, uh, particularly the use of sigils and egregores. Well, the use of isn't quite right. The generation of these things, that is creating kind of magical talismans. Right. I, I considered MAGA one of those. It's a stupid phrase by itself. It's almost a tautology, make America great again. But it wasn't that. It was it was MAGA, which was a new word, which functioned much as a sigil functions right. in a magical operation um, to evoke um, to evoke results. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially um, it's a kind of voodoo practiced on people to bring about certain outcomes and it worked pretty well and i was interested in the capital riot as being a form of uh, of voodoo and then when i posted that on facebook somebody sent in a really remarkable piece from a blog site called uh secret sun mm-hmm. which pointed out the similarities between um the capital riot and saturnalia as a ceremony um, there were a host of synchronicities, which, of course, themselves are considered um, the kind of the lifeblood of uh, chaos magic generating oh, synchronicities. What, what are some of these synchronicities? Well, that the um, the capital bu- the capital building was named after the capital in Rome, which was um, uh, the seat of worship of Jupiter. And I'm trying to think of how Saturn came in there. That there was, there essentially the I think the ceremony of Saturnalia was practiced on the um, at in the in the Roman capital, after which the capital in Washington D.C. was named. And according to the person who wrote this, and I don't know if it is true, that by the old Julian calendar, Saturnalia would have fallen on the sixth of January. Um, oh, wow. And 
Then he identified some of the costumes that people wore um, by the gods that were supposed to participate in Saturnalia. Certainly the Q shaman looked like a number of, um, he had elements of a number of the participants in a, in a Roman ceremony. If you assume this is driven by unconscious forces, but I also found interesting that as Saturnalia moved into the Middle Ages, that it had a feature known as the Lord of Misrule, who gave a speech that, in, that, that provoked the listeners to mischief. Now, in the Saturnalia, this was much more playful and, uh, and, and kind of like pranks and goofing off. Mm -hmm. But... The notion of a Lord of Misrule seemed um, particularly compelling. And I basically just took that article and used it to enlarge into a kind of mythical view of, um, of, the, um, uh, of the event. But then here's what happened to my book. I, I proposed to Inner Traditions that we just put it out as a quick book that was really on a popular topic, but they don't really work that way. Uh -huh. And the guy and Ehud, the publisher said to me, uh, the book's too political. Could you frame it more psycho-spiritually so that it fits the list better? So I just, I, I'm kind of endlessly fungible in what I do. And, uh, you know, like you say, everything imaginable. Right. I, that led me back to rethinking um, where I left off with bottoming out the universe. And so I wrote, I bracketed the whole book in another set of concepts. And those very much came out of where bottoming out the universe left me, which was kind of trying to imagine how this reality we're in is put together. And that deepens the framework in which I talked about everything else because it gave me a background I could fall back against. And I made the argument that um, 2020 was really the accumulation, the cumulative effect of all the um, sort of crossroads moments of the last um, 40 years from harmonic convergence to um, Y2K, to 2012, and throw in 9-11 back before that. And that all of these things were in a sense pointing to a, a sort of revelation or awakening. And the events themselves were maybe dark and apocalyptic in many cases, certainly 9-11 was, but in the larger sense, they were the opening opening of a shadow that was um, ultimately to be well beyond current time, the opening to what is vaguely talked about as the Aquarian age. And that the gateway to that would be pretty messy given who we are and where we have to come from and all the shadows and darknesses and transgressions that we're carrying mm -hmm. as a species and as a culture. So, I, I made that premise and I picked, I picked um, three items that I thought were particularly interesting and kind of trending at the moment. 
and I called them, um, I called them ice was the first one. And I, initially I called the second one, the microbiome. I think I changed that to animal intelligence to make it larger. Uh-huh. And my third one I called, uh, I mean, I thought it was a little too cute, but I used it anyway. I called it um, unidentified flying guides. Um, because the movie, I, I, there are a couple of movies that influenced me, current movies, and one of them was uh, The Phenomenon, the UFO movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, did you see that? I think I have, yeah. Yeah. And that was made by two people, I mean, or at least two people who, who I knew were very central to it. Jacques Vallée, who I published a few books by, and uh, Mark Barish, who I knew... I think in the late 90s, early mm-hmm. 2000s, um, who's a kind of general um, spiritual occult writer. And what I th- thought was impressive about the phenomenon was, it, although a lot of UFO people tell me it's just passe, but I thought it was great the way it brought together all the evidence and showed how consistent it was. And the things that struck me most about it that stood out were number one, when you when you get a hold of metal from a UFO, which they have on rare occasions, that and run it through an actual um, the kinds of uh, of equipment they have now to test things, which go down to a particle level. Yeah they find that there's no way you can make that, um, the, that uh, material on Earth, that um, particles have been rearranged to uh, create a whole new form of matter. Hmm. And that that's, uh, uh, I mean, in the movie that I, I take it at its word that that's what the laboratory at Stanford showed. And then the other thing, which I carried over into the latter part of my piece, was about the capacity of UFOs to shut off um, nuclear launch commands. So there were interviews with both American and Russian military people who basically said the same thing, which is that when these ships fly over, the whole... um, the whole system shuts down. Yeah, I, ju- I just interviewed somebody who was present when that had happened at one of the bases. Uh huh. So that's good because it's a little, it's a little piece of a little piece of backup to that. Um, well, I figured if that's true, um, maybe that's sort of how we got from Hiroshima to now without blowing up the world, and that the UFOs represent an intelligent um, intrusion into our system. But I also thought this, and uh, admittedly, this is a little bit playful, but it is playful on one level and not at another, which is, okay, let's look at the stolen election, the so-called stolen election, um, where you have, um, again, the polar factions utterly disagreeing with each other about the the election the the majority view is the election was conducted completely fairly and yet why do so many people think that it was stolen and that's i that's because 
the statistics, the numbers are weird. And I won't get go into all the weirdnesses of the numbers, but I'll just say, if you were going to steal an election, the numbers would look sort of the way they do, um, the anomalies, the statistical anomalies. Do I think that, the, that, that it was manipulated um, by the Democrats or something? No, I don't. I don't think it was a stolen election, so I don't want to go down that road. What I do think, though, and I'm just playing around with this, that if, um, if the UFOs wanted to save us from nuclear destruction, um, they're certainly capable of flipping an election. And, um, and so maybe, maybe um, higher powers decided that this election needed to be flipped. Mm. And, um, and so the stolen election is a little bit like a Sasquatch or a Yeti. Right. They're all these little evidential features, but there's no animal. Um, and the, so it's driving these people crazy. I mean, you can hear it in all the stuff. They just assume that they're going to come up with evidence. And it very much reminds me of the UFOs in a funny way. It's like they, they can't ever get a hold of a solid UFO or, or they can't ever bring in a Yeti. Um, but these things repeat and repeat and repeat and leave solid evidence. And the so-called stolen election seems to me to have this kind of this this site what Jung called psychoid quality of being a, a borderline event. It's an it's it's a event happening on the borderline of our consciousness and another consciousness, an intruding consciousness. Now, whether an alien force flipped the election, uh, and whether that would be a good thing or not. Um, obviously, I don't know, but I'm just saying that once you enter into that territory, mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's wide open. You have no idea. Well, th there is no such so, thing. So can I give, ask you a question? Yeah. It, this is one of my theories. Do you think it is possible that there's multiple realities and somehow our reality kind of slipped into something else? Well, I do think... Because um, it doesn't think, seem the same, does it? <laughs> what? It doesn't seem the same as it did. No, that's true. Okay, well, that's the whole other thing. It does seem that, the, that once we entered COVID time, but I think even as we were entering it, that, we, that, it, that the reality switched and that nobody, uh, nobody like in charge, in charge of the kind of the, the in charge of the culture of the civilization uh -huh. wants to admit that, but everybody seems aware of it. Um, the nature of time has changed. Yeah. Uh, the time is not running the same way. Um, I, I feel not so much as though the reality is switched is that we've kind of passed through a particular get yeah so in a way the reality has switched but i don't think that the other reality we were living was actually the real reality so you think this was the real reality and the other one was a uh, i don't know maybe when we were making up with our own consciousness well they both i think they both are transitional mm -hmm. but i think that the prior one 
God, it's hard to know how to articulate this. The prior one was just as real as this one, but it was real in such a way that it kidded us, that it was the whole reality. And it was not only the whole reality for the mainstream, it was the whole reality at every level and for every group from a tribe in the middle of the Amazon to, you know, Al Qaeda and ISIS to, um, to the, you know, Royal family of England to the narco, the narco lords in Mexico, uh -huh. they were all in one reality in the same reality from different parts. And everybody was convinced whether they were convinced that that was the sole reality in the universe, they were convinced that it was our reality. And then that switched and that's gone. Yeah. And everybody is, not everybody, but the consensus is still there. The consensus view is that we're still in that reality and it's our job to restore it. So I see some of the haste to vaccinate um, and I'm not going to take an anti-vax position. I'm just going to say it's awfully hasty to put to give the majority of people they think on Earth a vaccine that's really not been terribly tested, uh, and um, and a model of vaccine making that's untested. To me, it's partly saying bring back the reality. We want to do whatever we can to bring back the reality that's gone. So. Mm -hmm. get all the bars and restaurants open and get everybody vaccinated and somehow bring back this other reality. But I don't think that that reality is going to come back. Um, elements of it will come back as kind of placeholders right. until right. the new reality completely takes over. But I think that that's really interesting that, um, that so many people I talk to experience the shift in reality without knowing exactly what it is. Um, do, do, you do you think that the shift in reality is caused by an external, external force or do you think it's being created by a collective consciousness of just mass people believing the same thing? Well... I think it, I think it's, I don't think that they're ultimately that different. Um, but because uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a kind of cosmic paranoid entity and I don't have a cosmic paranoia about an entity. What, what I think is that, um, is that I, I've been studying for quite a while with John Friedlander, the psychic in Michigan. Okay whose books I've also helped put together, who um, weaves together a model of the universe that uses Seth, because he sat with Jane Roberts for the latter part of the time she channeled Seth. Mm -hmm. But also he, he includes um, theosophy, his years at the Berkeley Psychic Institute, and um, his, um, his study of, of Buddhism with Tibetan lamas. And he also has a law degree from Harvard. And he brings all of this together in, in a model. And in his model, which is kind of Sethian, um, the reality that we have 
is woven together by all of us. It's it's a the reality is a projection. It's a projection of of the collective energies of everything here, um, which means not only human beings but animals, plants, and and even stones because they're all vibrating. Um, they're sense. all vibrating with energy, but because in the physical realm, it's much too complicated to create a consensus reality that includes a spider and an octopus and us um, and a stone and an oak tree. Um, all of that is handled in his theory in the Buddhic plane, which is not um, Buddhism per se, but is the plane above the mental causal plane, which is the last plane at which human consciousness operates in an ordinary sense. And the planes above that, which are named uh, buddhic, atmic, monadic, and adi, are much more complex and subtle than the planes here. So in John's version of it, which is sort of Seth's version and not that far removed from the Hindu and theosophical version, we unconsciously and in our dreams all weave together this reality at a higher frequency um, yeah. in the buddhic realm and we do it particularly when unconsciously and when we sleep uh -huh. we do it in dreams and somehow miraculously it all fits together and we all participate in the same reality which is an amazing phenomenon if it's a if it's arising from everybody individually that it can be seamlessly sewn together so that we all it's it's solid these objects um, yeah. seem seem hard even though we know when we look at them through a microscope that there's nothing there but energy yeah. energy energy and information so um in that sense Yes, I think that we are generate. We have shifted the reality that we're generating, and we've started generating a new reality. But that's pretty wild, and and I think everyone's, me included, and probably you included, are just mm -hmm. hanging on for dear life, <laughs> trying to um, hold on to something concrete. Um, but when you look back at the old reality. Um, it wasn't it wasn't in that good shape it was it was deteriorating ecologically economically politically and in terms of um, human compassion and psycho and and just the mental state of the whole human race and so a lot of the things that have happened like in this new book i've been working on i kind of try to avoid the the very blatant political issues by pointing out how they're also symptoms of the shifting reality and and that they're so um, they're so intensely polarized because that represents the difficulty people have in trying to hold on to something real so they become vehement in their beliefs and in their demonization of people who don't believe what they believe. And at the same time, synchronicities are increasing, which is driving, um, or at least awareness of synchronicity is increasing. And so that's driving conspiracy theories. 
and um, and you end and you end up with, on the one hand, a phenomenon like QAnon, which people can come on the television and 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 just either make fun of or demonize or or um, uh, ridicule. Well, that's the same as make fun of, but I mean make the people who are involved in it um, in some way just crazy or delusional. And yes, that is true. And, and that is a partial truth. But then what's the reality, the shifting reality that's driving it? And in that sense, I don't think it's any more delusional than the Polynesian cargo cult or the, or the Native American uh, ghost dance. Mm -hmm. which were also attempts to um, create a kind of um, transitional reality to handle such enormous anomalies that can't, couldn't be processed otherwise. Um, and in the book, I go into cargo cults quite a bit. I had, an, when I was an anthropology graduate student, I had a brief career um, one summer studying... Um, millinery religion on the Hopi reservation in Arizona, and particularly um, a belief that we were about to pass into a different, uh, a different, well, just what we're talking about, into a different world. And I was going to pursue that and, and, and write a thesis around Hopi religion, but it didn't work out, and I ended up just completely disengaging from it. But I do have an interest in millinery religion and, and a feeling, uh, I mean, early Christianity before Paul was a millinery religion and involved um, radical beliefs and things that could have been considered delusional until they were actually legitimized and sanctified. And, um, and so, I'm not saying that, I mean, QAnon is awfully shallow compared to that, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it's being driven by the same, um, the same attempt to recalibrate reality. Uh, I'm not saying it as well here as I say it in my writing, but sometimes you, sometimes you improve on your writing when you talk about it and other times. <laughs> I mean, it takes me many, many drafts going over this stuff to get it right yeah. because you can fall off the edge in so many directions. Mm -hmm. and I've been doing it for a long time, so I've built up a kind of a method for how, how you can hold these things at the same time. But it's, it's difficult now because language is a minefield and... You can easily, there are landmines everywhere to step on. Um, and um, because, the, because everything, everything has become more like a cult than like a belief system, which makes dialogue difficult. Um, it, it's kind of like if you say the wrong thing, it's like wearing the wrong gang color in the wrong neighborhood um, in, in terms of language. But I've gotten, I, I don't want to, I at least want to close the thread I left open, which is that what I added to the book, the unpublished book, which I'm tentatively calling Opening the 2020 Portal and Beyond, is 
that I go from a discussion of ice, meaning the glaciers, the global thermostat, climate change, but also ice as a crystal and water as a magical element from which life arises. I go from that to the microbiome, which is really relevant to the whole COVID phenomenon in that viruses have been carrying RNA from the beginning of life on earth and participating in the creation of new species. And we ourselves harbor, um, I forget whether it's thousands or millions of other organisms that live quite happily in their own <laughs> realm. Yeah. Um, and that the COVID virus, the COVID is simply in some ways another form of what our organism has been dealing with from the beginning of the biosphere long before there were even there were mul even multicellular animals and that's its own whole topic the microbiome but i also then carried that over i was really swayed by seeing the movie that so many people have loved um my octopus teacher mm -hmm. which um so beautifully um, demonstrated the capacity of invertebrates to develop intelligence, right. independent of vertebrate intelligence. So that you have what amounts to a giant eight-armed oyster um, able to do these amazing things. It has three layers of color, um, it has like not only red, yellow, black cells, but it has other cells which are kind of iridescent that do blue and green. And then it has a, a white cell area that also reflects images. And it has things that make shapes and bumps on its body. And so it goes around the ocean mm -hmm. um, mimicking a stone, another fish. It's like it's like a total shapeshifter yeah. um, under, under the water and completely fluid. And the arms each have a brain, a, a primitive brain in them. So this is nothing like our kind of intelligence. And I got interested in writing about that and then writing about crows, which are the smartest birds. Um, and, and they've moved and they seem to have moved in with um, with COVID, um, a psychic um, who I published, though she doesn't like that word for what she does, but she's really an interesting uh, um, like reader of the unseen world. And she sees the crows as um, presently leading the, the dead from the virus, that they're like psychopomps leading the, especially when the epidemic was strongest in New York, where she is, um, Laura Aversano, she saw the crows as psychopomps leading the hordes of the dead across to the afterlife. Mm. And it's an interesting vision. And, and I'm just, I, so I have a section in the book on octopus, section on crows. And, and then I, I move, I move on through what I, you know, the kinds of things we're talking about, like where realities, um, realities kind of blur and overlap. Um, I've spent a lot of time recently talking to and, and reading and listening to, do you know Anthony Peake? No. Um, he's, um, 
he writes, he's, he's in England and he writes lots of books about the paranormal, the occult, but he's also a scientist and he's quite interested in the physics of all these things. But um, I've been helping him maybe develop a book that I'm going to oversee, a, a, um, a future book of his, and we've been talking on and off. And he told this story that um, I then went online and found, um, found other examples of and finally decided there were so many versions of the story that I would just make up my own based on the others. But it based, the way it, go, it, it goes um, is roughly that Vishnu, the god, the Hindu god, was um, walking with Narada discussing the universe. And I guess it's unclear whether Narada is a full god or kind of a pundit with somewhat god status. But clearly, Vishnu's on a higher level in the pantheon. And, um, and Narada asks him to explain Maya, the world illusion. And um, so they have a discussion about that, which I don't remember the details of, but usually discussions of the world illusion are like the things we've been talking yeah. about. Um, and he, he still doesn't seem to get it. So Vishnu says, um, could you go into that village and fetch me a glass of water? And so Narada goes into the village and picks a house, knocks on the door. And as the story goes, this absolutely to him, nowadays uh, you have to be careful of your language, but a beautiful woman appeared. Um, we'll try and say it in a non, uh, non-judgmental way to, to Narada's eyes, a beautiful woman who he falls in love with on sight. So he has trouble pulling himself away from the cottage and the father is delighted to have such a noted pundit at his door. And so they get to talking and before he knows it, he's made a proposal and there's a wedding and they, um, they, are, they are married, they have a farm, they plant crops, they have first one child, then another child. Uh, if I remember right, they build a temple in the village and things are going along quite wonderfully when there's a great flood and um, it, it comes over the bank of the river and first one child and then the second is swept away and then his wife is swept away and Narada is pulled into the water itself as he tries to swim after her. And then he's pu- pulled along in the, in the flood and he grabs onto a rock and pulls himself up on the rock. And what does he see on the rock but Vishnu standing there? And Vishnu says, I sent you a half hour ago to go for a glass of water. Now do you understand Maya? <laughs> and I, I love that story. That is um, awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and I feel that it, it particularly resonates with me because it touches on how time feels at the moment. Yeah. It feels as though at given times that more than one lifetime is crammed into a single day. 
And at other times, it just seems that it's like it just slides past. Mm -hmm. It's it's not being measured in the equal units. Um, you know, it's it's weird, and I say this a lot to my friends. Sometimes I feel like I've lived three separate lifetimes. Yeah, I know. Well, that yeah, and the the worlds that I've lived in are so different from each other. In some ways, I haven't talked about the books that I'm in in most committed to are these three non-fiction, I call them non-fiction novels, but they're, they're, I've kind of published them as two of them in one, in, in a form, but they they cover the span of the years that I've been alive, which for me, I was born in 1944, which seems like eons ago now, but the 50s, the 50s to me, and they, they go into the somewhat into the 60s. I think that they last into the early 60s. They're so mysterious. And they were like a trance, this um, amazing trance that the whole um, world was in. But it was, it was seems in retrospect to be completely synthetic and delusional. But boy, was it it was really beautiful in right. its own way. And everything was so dense and rich and consuming and none of that can be recreated. And I always felt I could never get across to my kids who are Generation X, um, what it was like to come through the 50s into the counterculture. They were born during the counterculture and so grew up with that already done and finished. And so then there was the counterculture, which kind of bridged for me uh, the the end of college, and and I kind of went knee jerk to graduate school, um, and and it was over the Vietnam War era, and um, and during the kind of Haight Ashbury time in San Francisco and mm -hmm. free speech movement in Woodstock, and all of that then seemed like an enormously huge reality. Um, there was the moon landing and, um, and much later the fall of the, um, uh, of the Soviet, the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And it doesn't really fit in the same timeline, but the, there was a general sense that the universe was coming around and revealing itself and then it all plunged in the 80s, the 80s into the 90s, into this darkness represent, it was a lot represented by drugs and, uh, um, but also a different kind of violence and, um, and um, well, I could go on, but the, there seemed to have been totally different eras since then. I mean, mm -hmm. things before 9-11 were different than things after 9-11. And I've tried to map that. It's a totally different kind of writing, but I've tried to map that in the books through essentially writing them like novels, but using real events from my life. And my life, the, the things around me have been weird enough that they, they kind of have filled out a story. Unfortunately, um, all the members of my natal family, all the blood members committed suicide, mm -hmm. which is a pretty powerful 
it's a really powerful teaching as well as all the other things wow. that's strange um, my mother meaning my mother brother and sister except uh -huh. there was a half brother and half sister but i grew up with them and they uh, my mother at age 55 my sister at age my brother at age 57 and my sister at age 64 and they were all haunted by the same I could call them demons or or something. Um, they they were incredibly powerful thought forms that haunted them, and they were almost identical. And my mother and sister jumped out the same window forty in New York City, forty two years apart. Oh wow! And my brother, who um, who was more advanced in his practices, but still unable to handle this energy he stabbed himself to death with a knife, wow. um, which was pretty intense. Do you think there's a family curse? Well, I've worked on, that's one of the journeys I've taken. I, I worked with um, somebody who deals with ancestral hexes, and I don't think that there's any one answer that any one model fits. But one of my books, um, the one I'm actually rewriting now called Out of Babylon, is about the family and, and all of these events. But it's also about um, my search for who my real father was, because it, it, it kept changing. Like I, I was raised under my stepfather's last name until I was 12. So I was Richard Towers in childhood. And then at 12, I got changed to my present name. And then at 30, I found out that after my mother's suicide, that she had me by an affair with a guy, a guy whose last name was Brandt, B-R-A-N-D-T, which I guess is my birth name, but I never carried it. Right. And then the family I do, whose last name I do carry, ran this large resort hotel in, in the Catskills, which went bankrupt in the 80s. But before that was kind of a, a major place where movie stars and athletes came and boxers trained for heavyweight fights and stuff like that. So after I learned about that family, which wasn't really my family, but I, it was made to be, and I changed my name to theirs, I, I kind of entered that whole world. And, and so that's another thread that I, that, I that I deal with. And then in writing this book, my children have had interesting enough lives that I, it's become kind of a sixth generation journey as I reach back to the kind of history of some of my great grandparents that I know about. And then of course can go through my parents' lives and my own, and then my kids' lives and a little bit of their kids' lives. Um, my daughter, our daughter is a, is a pretty well-known um, movie director and novelist and performance artist who uses the uh, professional name Miranda July. And, wow. and some of the uh, people listening will undoubtedly uh -huh. know her through that. And so that's one of the three books that, um, and one of the three, the one that I, published called new that one's as i said is called out of babylon and it's i i, I used at least a hundred pages of my brother's journals 
in that. Um, and I also used <coughs> a certain portion of, um, of my sister's writings to bring their voices in. And the phrase out of Babylon comes from my brother who um, developed a Rasta per persona and was very involved in, a, in, in kind of a reggae identified personality. He had dreadlocks and he became a street person. And he used the phrase out of Babylon to describe where we had come from. Um, and there was a moment, I, I guess it was in the 80s when um, he was basically a street person, only my stepfather had put him up in, a, in, a, in the projects on Second Avenue in New York. And he had, um, he had, he had like boarded up his windows so you couldn't see anything. Mm -hmm. And he had made fires in the rug. Um, he had he had like turned it into the prairie, this apartment. And so it was when my son was in college, and as he we we're in New York, and we they'd grown up in Berkeley where we had lived then, my kids. But um where our whole family was in New York then, had sort of come together in New York. And our son was meeting his high school girlfriend who was going to college in Ohio. And she, she was from mainland China, his high school girlfriend. And, and so we went together. He, we met her bus at the Port Authority and we went to look for my brother and, um, and couldn't um, find him because he slept in Central Park a lot. But eventually, won't go into the whole story, we did find him, we went to the apartment, and he had a record, one record left. He didn't even have like um, a good phonograph. He didn't have a needle. He just had something stuck in, but he put it on, and the song was Stepping Out of Babylon um, by Max Romeo and the Upsetters. Oh, and wow. the song went one step forward, two step backwards, step out of Babylon. And he got up and he pulled down the, all the stuff that was covering the window. So this light came pouring in and he, uh, he says um, something like, pretty appropriate, Rich, um, Babylon. And he points and we can see the apartment buildings that we grew up in, mm -hmm. these various buildings up on Park Avenue and 96th Street. And he just says, there it is, Babylon. Um, and he says, you know, now, now I can't, they won't even let me in the service entrance. And he says, you somehow flew out of Babylon like some sort of wind spirit, but I've had to fight my way out of Babylon every step of the way. And that's how I named that book. Um, um, because I, I go deep, deep into his story and, and, in telling my own story, try and tell the stories of these other people. Um, and, um, and then the other, uh, here I am drifting off into books that are essentially unavailable also, but New Moon is the book about growing up, which for me was mainly New York City. And although it's also the book about college, which was Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's rewritten out of my high school and college writing. So it has a lot of things that I never would have remembered otherwise. 
I essentially began writing it as a teenager. And then the third one, which I haven't published anything of at all because it seems too personal, is about, um, it's about marriage, sex, relationship, and the spiritual quest. And it's about my own marriage. It's called Episodes in Disguise of a Marriage. And I got my wife to um, edit it and rewrite her character. Mm -hmm. And I used some of her own writing too. Um, so in the two other books in Out of Babylon and Episodes, I use um, the writing of, um, of other people to fill it out. But all three books go together to map the transitions from the 50s to, the, to now, which seem to me like successive different worlds. Me too. And, um, and I don't, um, I, and they, they are not theoretical books, they're just stories. Mm -hmm. And I probably like doing that as much as anything. And I'm probably gonna try and figure out in another few months how, how I want to get those published, because um, it's not really obvious to me. They're really long. Um, um, people can find the first one, New Moon, um, because I did, because the version, there's a version of it out there. Um, and there's even a very early version of Out of Babylon. But anyway, I, I've been working. I've been working on those, and that's a real departure from what we were talking about. But, um, <laughs> not, not really, though, because mm -hmm. it, it does all tie together. Mm -hmm. um, I think you did. You say you were from New Jersey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm from Princeton. Oh, from Princeton. Right? Yeah, yeah. My believe it or not, my mom worked for Einstein. <laughs> well, that. <laughs> Well, that's believable. And, and one of the authors that I've published a lot, Peter Levine, the trauma um, expert, mm -hmm. um, uh, he, his, his, his parents had a remarkable interaction with uh, Einstein when his mother was pregnant with him, hmm. um, where um, he was rescued from, she was rescued in a boat by him. Wow. So there are yeah. probably many great Einstein stories. Yeah, yeah. My mom used to, uh, she used to split atoms at Princeton University. Mm -hmm. and that's how she worked for him. My dad did too. My dad just used to mow his lawn. <laughs> well, he, he wasn't splitting atoms, but I no. suppose some atoms got split in the process. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lazy grass got split. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, yeah, I mean, we talk at so many levels, and I think it's interesting to talk about the metaphysical stuff, but it's also just interesting to tell stories and uh, and to. Um, but really, what's the difference? It's just uh, they uh, are. They there, are there, there's almost no difference. I don't think. I think the 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 story, you know, living in the reality that we live in. We're just living in the story. It's like three. It's a three-dimensional story, which is sort of a metaphysical concept in of, in and of itself. I would think. Yeah, the um, probably the project that's interested me the most that's not my own book is like the thing about John Friedlander. So of discovering him is really interesting to me. 
here's how I discovered him. First of all, um, in the early 90s, I was going through a particular crisis, and one of the authors I was publishing was this guy, Peter Ralston, who is probably the most, um, he's not wildly well-known, but I think he's the most renowned um, American martial artist, like the Bruce Lee of America. I mean, he's won tournaments and things, and he's he ultimately gave, aged out of martial arts and now he's a Zen teacher. Mm-hmm. But at his dojo, I used to go to practice the martial arts he was teaching in the early 90s. And I met a guy there who I really was taken with and he seemed like a great teacher. He had no other students. So I decided to study with him. And for a few years, I was his only student. Uh-huh. And he just did all sorts of stuff across the board. He didn't stick to I thought we were studying Tai Chi or at least Taoist martial arts, but he threw in boxing and Taekwondo and but in little snippets. And he also was studying at the Berkeley Psychic Institute. And he was constantly talking about photon torpedo. He had all these Star Trek metaphors. Uh, to get your forts photon torpedoes and and um, a kind of um, warp speed stuff, and he would throw this into our our sparring, and I never took it seriously. And then he eventually went back. I, this was in Berkeley, and he eventually went back to Minneapolis, where he was from. He couldn't earn a living consistently in Berkeley, and I. And maybe about 15 years after we had last studied, I had had the flu and I was feeling horrible and I called him up for inspiration. And he said, go to the Berkeley Psychic Institute. You you know, you claim to be curious about stuff, but you'd never once gone there and it's right in your town. So I went and it was amazing. It was just as bad as I thought it would be. That is, it was like, what I thought of as trash occultism, mm-hmm. but it also was completely real and it worked. Um, and stuff mm-hmm. that I never would have imagined would have worked, worked once you cross the threshold. And um, I always liked the initial story from there, which was the very first week, very first class, they called it psychic kindergarten were asked to make grounding cords because you needed a grounding cord to do anything else. And you made the grounding cord by attaching something to the base of your spine and then running it down to the center of the earth and making sure you grounded yourself in the earth because the earth is neutral. And this was a visualization and you could use anything you wanted. You could use electricity or you could use a tree or a lamppost. You just had to be able to attach it to the base of your spine and and then run it to the center of the earth Mm. and let your energy, your excess energy drain down out of it to the center of the earth. So at the end of the class, the teacher says, well, you can also attach grounding cords to other things if they need grounding. And she gave a few examples. And then she said, your homework is is to ground is to ground something during the week and report the results of the next class. Well, I didn't take it seriously, so I didn't think of it. And on the night before the class met again, somebody 
offered my wife and me tickets to the theater in San Francisco um, because they couldn't go and they were expensive tickets and we just took them and went. Um, and um, we took to our seats and then this gay male couple came in and they were very theatrical and they were waving to all their friends and they were totally entertaining. But after a while, um, the play hadn't started yet, obviously, but after a while they were, it was irritating because they kept getting in front and sort of bumping into us. Mm -hmm. And my wife said, they're so obstreperous. I just wish they'd sit down. And then I thought the grounding cord. So I quickly attached a grounding cord to each of them and grounded them in the center of the earth. And they went and sat down and were quiet. And <laughs> I thought, yeah, sure. But when I came back to class, everybody had the same result. That whatever they grounded, stayed grounded. I mean, a, a grade school teacher grounded a really um, like rambunctious students and the woman grounded her husband when, as she said, he was talking shit, she grounded him. <laughs> and, and the teacher goes, yeah, the grounding cord, it always works. Well, I had many works. I mean, that was like, I studied there for two years and I was living part-time in Maine. So I taught the system in Maine and I had one one of my old friends was a lobster fisherman who who when I I did a, a study of fishermen for my degree and um, and he had he could no longer fish he was working as a, as a greeter at Walmart at a super Walmart superstore and so he was teaching some of the psychic tools to the cashiers. Mm -hmm. And they were all like practicing psychic exercises <laughs> secretly in Walmart. And at one point, they he said the whole row of cashiers was putting dropping golden suns on their head to clear the energy of the people coming through. <laughs> and, uh, and Wendell goes, I think I would have been in trouble if they knew I was the one who taught all the cashiers. <laughs> That's but, hysterical. Like you have like a, a whole Walmart of occultists. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I I found that the Berkeley Psychic Institute was too much of a cult. It was too much like Scientology, finally, right. or and you had to sign a, a spiritual agreement to continue. And I I I asked for a waiver, and I wouldn't didn't get it. So my old martial arts teacher Ron said, "Well, there's this guy I'm studying with in the Midwest. He's too intellectual for me, but you might like him." And that was John Friedlander. Um, and that was like 2008, and I've been studying with him since. And his system, he, he's developed it with another psychic, uh, Gloria Hemshire, who's in Boston, who he teaches with. Mm -hmm. And it's a really great system um, for um, uh, understanding how the sort of how the universe functions and why we're alive in it and why we have the difficulties we do. And so he has a lot of exercises, practices, much like Buddhist practices for how to clear energy, how to get other people's energy out of your space, how to uh, convert anger um, into other emotions. Um, he says every example of anger is a delusion. Um, and 
a lot of stuff, but I always felt that there was a huge part of his teaching because I listened to his classes missing from the books. So I, he said, well, that's because I'm channeling a lot of it. Um, and it's not really me, it's, it's like these entities. Well, I thought this stuff was interesting enough that on and off over six or seven years, I listened to roughly 200, 300 hours of classes. And I pulled out all the instances of that um, and kind of tied it together with other stuff and put it together in a book, which will be coming out next year. Um, and we've called it uh, ultimately recentering Seth because it's based on the Seth channelings. Mm -hmm. And I find that the, the, the most interesting accounts of reality that, um, that I've run into, it's completely radical. Um, you won't see much of it anywhere else, but it's a lot like what you're talking about, which, which is not just shifting realities and, and worlds kind of fissioning into into multiple realities, but also probabilities and how every moment splits off into other moments where things that don't happen still retain existence in another form. So at every moment, everywhere, re reality is splitting into what happens here and what doesn't yeah. happen and what doesn't happen then goes and has its own potential right. in mm -hmm. parallel realms. Um, and I, it, sounds, it sounds confusing and difficult, but there's a way in which it rings true, which is that we're so literal and linear in how we approach things. This works, yeah. this doesn't work. It, it, this came out well, I'm happy, I'm not happy that all of it is actually happening across the spectrum and mm -hmm. we're just narrow banded into this one piece of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you, like I kind of visualize that as like a whole bunch of webs all interconnected with each other. You know, and you reach a certain point in one web and it can go this way or that way because of a probability. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's what's forming, you know, what we're perceiving as a reality. But at those junctures where the probabilities come in, that's when we experience these big shifts. Yeah, and, and that ultimately, um, well, for one, I, I do meet you on thinking that's what's happening now um, in some um, very real way, but also that it points back to the idea that reality is, there is no solid reality. It's all oh, a thought form. Yeah, it's weird. It's, um, it's really weird. That is, you could say, well, no, it's not a thought form because there's a difference between thought and matter. But I think that that's because we are organized at the same frequency that the that, ma that matter is organized right. at. So it seems real to us. And also, um, we, we, uh, we, there's, I don't think that there is like some other universe that's more real than this. Right. Not that it's not that we're in this dream dreaming. I like the Australian Aborigine, the translation of the term, the dreaming, mm -hmm. because it is kind of a dreaming. And yeah. Yeah. I got that one for us. It's from like a uh, yoga too. He kind of 
mentions it as a, a great cosmic dreamer. Mm -hmm. And the Australian Aborigine talk about the landscapes as, as different dreamings of mm -hmm. creatures. You have a, you like a opossum dreaming and a <laughs> turtle dreaming. Um, and, and I think that, I think that the universe is conceivably made up of all these dreamings, yes. which are interwoven together. And they Absolutely. were, in, and they were in, we're in, a, we're in a the kind of dreaming that is appropriate to our, our souls at this point, that yes. this is the kind of dreaming that our souls need and are doing. And it's, um, everything that's in it belongs in it. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's like the football draft <laughs> or plastics coming out of a factory mm -hmm. or, um, or like um, Trump right. or, or, um, or, or the stock market or the science of galaxies. It, it's, all, it's all coming out of the same thought form. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's sort of my perception too. When, and that actually helps me not get too hung up or too attached to all that kind of stuff because sometimes I just look at it and say, well, it's all just some kind of crazy dream anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's an awfully uh, powerful dream. It seems it seems real, but somewhere, somewhere in part of me, I, I know it's not real. Yeah, but there's... It's it, well. I, John has a thing. I, early when I was studying with him, I told him I did this exercise, where I'd say, "This is real. This is real. This is." Then I go, "This is not real. This mm -hmm. is not." Real. And he said, "Well, here's how I do it: that um, that um, what science says is this is all real, but it's meaningless." Mm -hmm. When in fact they have it backwards, none of it is real, and it's incredibly meaningful. Right. No, that's very, very. Again, that sort of goes back to like a, a Buddhist idea of like the middle way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. Um, so, what do you think the next the, the, this shift that we're experiencing now? Do you have any projections of where we might be going next? Do you think things are going to get better? Or do you think things are going to get worse? Well, is there a difference? <laughs> that's, I mean, that, that's true, too, because you are two sides of the same coin, so aren't I, they? I think it's hard to imagine that things are going to get better before they get worse, but I always think they're going to get better ultimately because the whole thing is an evolution of sorts. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it, it's a... Uh, it's an awakening, it's an initiation. So in that sense, I think they're gonna get better. It's just that there's a lot of crap that needs to be cleaned out before that can happen. Yeah. Um, I remember one of my favorite lines and I most quoted in half the books that I write, um, the poet Robert Kelly said to me back in, what well, it was like 1969 when I like, was worried that things weren't going well. And um, and I, like we were headed for doom. And here we had like a young kid and we're, what was gonna happen to the world? 
And he, rather than be re, being reassuring, he said, um, I think we're living in the darkness that does not precede the dawn, but the birth of a radically new order of things. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, I, I still come back to that as a really good measure that, um, that it is a darkness and you can't say, well, the darkness will pass and everything will be all right. But you can say that a radically new order of things will come into being. And that new order, I think, will be fresh. And, um, and I'd like to think that it won't have um, some of the hangups and, um, and kind of sociopathies that this one has. I hope so, too. Um, because um, I think everybody's intrinsically capable of better. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's an awful lot of recreational bad behavior um, for all different reasons. But I, I, think, I think one of the reasons is that people don't, uh, don't think in karmic terms. So they don't think in terms of the real consequences of their behavior meaning not to other people, but to themselves. Um, the more karma you accumulate, the harder it is to, to make headway. Um, and I, I, I think that, that there's just, it, it's gotta be fear driven. Um, there's no other explanation because it's, it's irrational otherwise um, you could say it's greed driven, but I think greed is just another form of fear. Mm -hmm. um, um, I mean, it seems, it seems kind of narcissistically and, and, and greed driven and, and Trump was the epitome of kind of narcissism and, and, and greed and self-interest and, um, you know, like in the book I write about how, how, how much he did was like, uh, what did I call it? Um, getting back, getting back a, a penny on the dollar or something, as long as the, the dollar was someone else's and the penny was his. Right. <laughs> that, that's so much the way we, the, the world lives. It's like, it keeps like the biggest, the biggest things and, and God knows the climate crisis is a direct result of this, the biggest things are, are valued the least and people are running around holding on to these little tiny pennies as if they were valuable and then they're not making them happy either. The, the people who are the most supposedly the most privileged and wealthiest are, are miserable um, because that doesn't work. Um, they, they end up just having to keep accumulating and accumulating because the accumulation is ultimately empty since it's all empty. Mm -hmm. As you say, the middle way. Wow. So I'm going to have to have you back on again. Um, because I really want to... I've been... I mean, I suppose I'm the guest and I'm supposed to talk, but I'm used to doing more, you know, engaging the mm -hmm. person conversation when I do these podcasts. So. But, but yeah, okay, well, I'd love to have you back again, though, to sort of dive into some of the, the the chaos magic stuff that you talk about in the occult, 
because uh, that's a real popular topic that I cover quite often. Oh, you do? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I've even had uh, Lon Milo Duquette on my show. And, and, do you know about Gary Lockman's writings on that? He's um, a, no. He's a fellow South Jerseyite to you, in hmm. a way. Gary Lockman, he, he's better known for being the uh, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for his group Blondie. <laughs> but he writes books on chaos magic. Huh. Um, he, um, I think, because I, I have with me here. Um, I use I use this one a lot. Um, um, it's Dark Star Rising: Magic mm -hmm. and Power in the Age of Trump. Huh. And he he's particularly good on showing the parallels in Russia. The, the parallels to the kind of Trump movement in Russia. Uh -huh. um, and, but he, he knows the history of, of Renaissance magic pretty well. And, um, and in a way, chaos magic, we didn't get to talk about it enough. The chaos magic, I think, is the intersection of pop culture, modernity, rock culture, and traditional magic and yeah. synchronicity. Yeah. All of these things are kind of thrown together. Yeah, I have a, I've had a couple occultists that are sort of into like the a pop culture type of magic, and um, I, and I find it interesting, like how how that whole, you know, how ritual and ceremonial magic and, and Wicca and natural paganism and and all the different types of folk magic. Are, are now sort of mainstream things that, that sometimes like people practice them and they don't even know what they are. And you kind of mentioned that in your book yeah. too, about yeah. people, you know, creating like egregores and not knowing it, you know, or creating a sigil and not knowing actually what they're doing. They're doing magic, but they have no idea what they're doing. Right. The society is so secularized and so materialized that people are deluded in thinking that there are not spirits everywhere, and and like um, and energies and energies that they can't see flowing through events and influencing them, and that and that everybody is naturally telepathic and telekinetic at some level, so we're all in this like hoax together, <laughs> um, you know, pretending that none of this is happening. Right. And, and even like with people like taking like, like different sides and different views and getting angry at the other people, it's like, like you're like, you have like a one group of people almost like inadvertently cursing the other people. And then the same way in the other way, you know, so you have this yeah, bizarre, bizarre flow of energy. Yeah. And it's, and it's sort of completely unexamined in that. I mean, everybody sort of knows at some level, but they're they're so hooked into it, and it's so engaging. Mm -hmm. It's so um, yeah. In bottoming out the universe, I I do write about that a lot. The how 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 do we get in these reality trances? And uh, <laughs> and and what? Um, uh, because I think in some sense there must there must be a built-in encryption. That's that's cuts that we're not meant to we're we're actually meant to go through these trances. Yes. Yeah. John John refers to this reality as an exquisitely designed reality. 
<laughs> it's um, it's and it is. I mean, it's it's really subtle, um, and and there's every way you play with it, it reflects directly back into you, and there's no way to beat it. The people who beat the game, there's no way to. I mean, there then there's mortality itself. There's no, yeah. it's not a game you can win. So it, it calls for the most, um, the most kind of, it calls for continuous imaginal recreation. Um, I mean, the way I always think that I muddled through what, what got the rest of the people in my family, what overwhelmed them is, is that you just keep having a dialogue with it. Mm-hmm. You, you don't um and i and there are times when i've despaired when i've just thought it was hopeless and i've never been suicidal the way they were but i've had all the same hopeless feelings and thoughts and just i no way through this i could never get through this and it's really powerful um those are not at all trivial or discardable feelings. They go right to your heart. Yeah, yeah. I, I've dealt with a whole lot of that myself. And what really has really helped me is just being creative. You know, mm-hmm. when, when I start feeling that way, it's kind of like when it's the best time for me to start to create something. And then that pulls me out of that kind of, that that depression and darkness and negative thoughts and feeling like, just getting stuck into the futility of sometimes what life feels like. I know it's, um, um, I, I did the worst stretch ever. I had other issues, but I never was depressed, but then I spent 850 straight days depressed that ended in October, roughly October 20th of last year. So, I have a double kind of experience of COVID or of the shifted reality. First of all, my shift occurred well before it occurred more than, you know, like a year and a half, almost two years before uh-huh. COVID came. I was already in the in some sort of internal pandemic state. And then it came, which made the reality all the weirder. Um, and and then when I thought it was impossible to get out of it, I, I got out of it. And, um, and nothing external changed, but my view changed, which seemed really important. Yeah. I have to say it's been very similar with me, too. My, I mean, what happened with me is like my, my, my mom died, then my, a couple years or so later, then my dad died, and then... As for that, I moved to Alabama. So I was getting like, de- I got really heavily depressed. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and then COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And actually, like when COVID hit, is actually when I actually started to pull out of it a little bit because that's when I started this podcast. And then the podcast has just been like so much fun because I get to talk to all these different people and talk to people that have influenced my view on the world and maybe help influence other people's view on the world or at least make them question what they're experiencing. You know, and it makes me, it helps. It just, you know, I can't really describe it, but it helps. It's helped me a lot. Right. Well, you, you, the, 
for each person there like there is a way but it's up to each person to find it yeah definitely well what before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you and find your book? Well, or books, um, many books. <laughs> yeah, well, I have um, uh, probably too complicated and, and sad a story to get into that all of my books were somewhat maliciously put out of print, but they're still available. So if you look on Amazon, there are copies of pretty much everything still available, but they won't be there for long. Ultimately, Inner Traditions is going to reprint all of them. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the, my book with them, Bottoming Out the Universe, is a good, is a good starting point um, and is available in, in the usual way. And then, um, and then I do have a website under my name, richardgrossinger.com. It's somewhat of a, of a half-constructed website, but it can be used. And... I have a bunch of stuff on there, some writings and links to the um, list I'm putting together at Inner Traditions and some travel journals and other things. Awesome. So I will post a link to your website and I'll also post a link to your book on Amazon in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check them out while they're listening. Okay. And uh, thanks for being on. Yeah, thank you for setting it up. And um, you found me, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, I kind of scour the world for guests. Well, thanks again. And um, we'll connect, I'm sure, in some way. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, hang on one second. I just have to play the outro and we'll wrap it up. Okay. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. And it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.